Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. If you love good, you're going to hate evil. If you love Christ, you're going to hate anything anti-Christ. Every good lover is a good hater. You know, you would be hard-pressed to find a ministry that has not approached this section of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches. It is a fascinating section of Scripture, and everyone has approached it a time or two. Well, we are no different. But you see, it's because it holds such relevant information. It is addressed to the seven churches in Asia Minor, but it is also addressed to you and I today. Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church begins our excursion now here in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 1 through 11. Here's Pastor Gary in today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Now, what is he complimenting them for? He's complimenting them in verse 2 for their good works. They sought to be faithful to the Lord. He complimented them for their toil. They were hardworking in their efforts for the Lord. They weren't just a a bunch of slouches. They were persevering. He brings that up a couple of times in verse 3. They were long-suffering. They didn't have a fly-by-night attitude. They had constancy. And also, they couldn't endure all evil men, either evil because they taught false doctrine or because they lived in an ungodly way. They couldn't tolerate heresy. They couldn't tolerate men living in clear rebellion against the word of God. And as a result, church discipline, I'm sure, was practiced very intensely in this church. And they put to test those who called themselves apostles, who they found were not, but were false. You see, they knew the Bible well enough to check those who claimed to be Holy Spirit-inspired apostles like Paul and Peter, but which were not. So they had a very solid, extensive knowledge of theology and the word of God and of ethics. Verse 3, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That is, you have suffered for this. You had to pay a price for this kind of attitude. People have looked upon you as bigoted and narrow-minded. Any of you ever been called that? Because of your emphasis on theological and ethical purity. And in so many words, he is saying, I appreciate that. You have endured for my namesake and you have not grown weary. And then in verse 6, he says, yet you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, before we look at the Nicolaitans, 
I want you to see something here. You hate what I hate, Jesus is saying. And you don't hate what I hate would be, and if you don't hate what I hate, we've got a big problem. And I do hate the Nicolaitans, so I'm glad to see that you do also. You see, godly, holy hatred is such an important part of the Christian life. I mean, if you love something, you are going to hate anything that opposes or seeks to oppress or harm the person you love. If you love good, you're going to hate evil. If you love Christ, you're going to hate anything anti-Christ. Every good lover is a good hater. R.L. Dabney said at the end of the 1800s, What America needs now more than anything else is a good hater because that is what every good lover will be, end quote. Beloved, you show me someone who says, I love my wife and he does not hate those who try to violate her and I'll show you someone whose love for his wife is not very strong. In fact, I have even more I would say about that person. So Jesus is saying there are certain things and movements and doctrines that I hate. And I want to praise you because you hate the things I hate. And among those things that Jesus hates are the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, what were the Nicolaitans? If you look up the word Nicolaitans on Google, it's just a circus. It has no connection to with reality. People have used the Nicolaitans, about which we know very little, to create a whole movement in history over the past 2,000 years who identify the Nicolaitans with the Antichrist or other Christians they just simply don't agree with. So forget looking into the Nicolaitans because everything that is said is simply guesswork they are only mentioned here in this chapter twice they were a problem in the church of Thyatira as well and if you read the writings of an early church father named Arrhenius he said more about them than anyone else and there are only two things we really know about the Nicolaitans some Arrhenius and anything beyond that is pure myth in fact what I'm about to tell you we don't even know if this is true Because we're not sure Arrhenius knew what he was talking about. But more than likely, the Nicolaitans were, first of all, antinomians. They were like people we have today who say, you are under grace now. We don't have to follow the law of God. They took that as far as they could run with it. So they were very indulgent of all kinds of sins apparently, and all kinds of ungodly sexual practices and synthesis with pagan worship. They were also, according to Arrhenius, Gnostics. And Gnostics are the ones about whom John, particularly in 1 John, wrote about. They didn't believe in the incarnation of Christ. They had a skeptical, agnostic view of many, many things. 
They thought it was actually reason only in the elite that could understand truth. And everyone else were just a bunch of lowly peasants who didn't account for much of anything. So whatever the Nicolaitans were, they were a people who were opposed to the apostles. They were opposed to revealed truth and opposed to faithful Christian living. As, and as a result, Jesus hated them. And he congratulated the church of Ephesus that they hated them as well. Now, verse 4. You can see the solemnity of Christ in these words. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Oh, you're strong. You're hardworking. You're not lazy. You're performing good deeds. You stand against evil men. You hate heresy and false doctrine. You hate the Nicolaitans whom I hate. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. They were doing so many things right that they lost sight of the heart of everything. So what Jesus is saying to them is, in all of your defense of orthodoxy and your condemnation of heresy and false ethics and the Nicolaitans, you don't love me like you used to. You don't love me as you did it first. That sparks no longer there. At one time, the love of Christ constrained you and everything you did, you did because of your love for him that filled your heart. Now, there are other reasons why you do what you do. Or maybe it's because of intellectual arrogance. But the point is, you don't love me like you used to. Now, keep in mind, love has a vertical and a horizontal aspect to it. So he's not simply talking about love for God. You've left your first love for God and your first love for your neighbor. Love the Lord, remember, your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. That love is no longer there in Ephesus. You've left it behind somewhere. In all of your battles for truth and battles for ethical purity in the church, somewhere along the line, you have abandoned your love for God and your love for other men. Now there are other things motivating you. In other words, in Ephesus, there was doctrinal purity and Doctrinal progress and doctrinal maturity, but there was very little sanctification with it. That is, they knew a great deal about a great deal, but they weren't growing much in the faith, spiritually speaking. The church tried to counter the false doctrines and the false living all around her with true doctrines, but without love which is always just a little ugly. So 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Now, whatever you do, don't make those absolute statements. When he says knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up, but love edifies, 
He's not setting them up against one another here. He's not saying that knowledge without love is an ugly. He's just saying that knowledge without love is an ugly thing. And you never, beloved, have to make a choice between the two. Remember Philippians 1.9, where Paul prays for the church at Philippi, and he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So your love's not growing if your knowledge is not growing, and your knowledge and discernment aren't growing unless your love is growing. So it's not a choice. You don't say, well, I pick love over knowledge because love is sweeter and kinder and knowledge is just icy cold. That is a modern schism between two words the Bible does not make. You want all the knowledge of the word of God that you can. And you want to have all the love you can. And they grow together. The point is, the churches that are strong on doctrine and strong on doctrinal and ethical purity and discipline are sometimes lacking in vertical and horizontal love. So, beloved, I ask you, examine yourself. Examine your own heart and your church. Make sure that that's not true of you or us. Because if you do have a solid grasp of the truth, remember, truth transforms your whole life. In Romans 6, 17, it says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart, to that form of teaching which you were committed. In other words, a change has taken place in your life. And that is because of truth. You were once slaves of sin, but now you are obedient from the heart. So if you really do have a good grasp of the truth, that truth is going to transform your life And there is going to be growth in love as well as in understanding and knowledge. So as a result of this one criticism, Jesus gives a threefold exhortation. He says, remember, repent, and return. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. And bear in mind, he is now talking to the church and do the deeds you did at first or else I am going to come to you and will remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So here is the exhortation to the church so they can get back to their first love. Remember doesn't mean get nostalgic. Remember means get back on track. Remember how it was and get back there. Find out what is in your life and in your church that caused you to be sidetracked and get back to your first love. Remember where you started and get back there. Repent. That is, turn around. Get over with it. Don't fool around. Go back where you started and make things different and return. Do the deeds you did at first. Do all those deeds. Let love show itself the way it once showed itself in the early days of your faith, both to God 
and to your neighbor. Now, what are the elements of these deeds? What are the deeds that prove true love? A firm doctrinal stance and a zeal for doctrinal ethical purity. They weren't doing the wrong thing when they were intolerant of heresy and ethical impurity. That really is essential to true love. They were just doing that apart from the rest of it. So true love includes on your part and on mine a firm stance for right doctrine and zeal for doctrine and ethical purity. Second, bear in mind that love has a vertical and a horizontal aspect so that we love God as well as our neighbor. And we show that love to our neighbor so that people know we are Christians by the way we love each other. And then the very word agape, which is the great New Testament word for love, it has two features. First, agape is self-giving. God is said to love. When he, said, when he, is, he is said to love, he gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So true love is a giving of yourself for the welfare and happiness of another person without regard for merit or payback. And thirdly, God's love is defined in Galatians and in Romans as fulfillment of the law of God. So you love someone when you give yourself to that person for his or her welfare and happiness and then you seek to obey what the Bible says you should be and do in reference to that person you love. You don't make up your own rules, but rather you love a person in terms of the law of God. It's not merely an emotion or fuzzy feelings, beloved, although it includes that. But it's obedience to the law of God. That's how you love and the fourth thing it includes is hatred for all ungodliness, heresy, and lovelessness. Real hatred. You do hate what Jesus hates. Now, he warns them as to what he's going to do and what is going to happen to them if they do not repent and change their ways. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else... I'm coming to you. Is he talking about the second coming? No, Jesus is coming again, whether or not they repent at Ephesus. The repentance at Ephesus has nothing to do with the second coming, but he is talking about Revelation 1-7. I am going to intervene into your history, church, at Ephesus. I'm going to come to you in providence and in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to do something to you if you don't repent. So here again, we see one of those places in the book of Revelation where Christ comes, he keeps on coming, and intervenes into history in order to purify or judge his church. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. Church of Ephesus. Unless you repent. I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to end your 
history. I'm going to end your life as a church. And the church is gone in Ephesus, beloved. Apparently, they didn't repent. It's quite a statement to say. Christ comes to a church and ends his existence, removes the lampstand, which is a symbol of the church, out of its place, unless you as a church repents. Then he makes a promise to them in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now he is addressing the church members. And he's saying, in, in essence, some of you don't have ears to hear me. And if you're going to hear me, the Holy Spirit has got to give you ears. And yet there are some of you in the church of Ephesus to whom the Holy Spirit did not give you the capability of hearing and understanding and obeying the voice of Christ. Oh, that is a sad state of affairs. Do you have ears to hear these things? Do you have the capability of understanding what he is saying here to us? And are you willing to judge yourself in light of it? He who has an ear, let him hear. What the church says, what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. Now, that's a very important word in the book of Revelation. It occurs 15 times. Sometimes the word is translated overcome. Sometimes it's translated come to be victorious. Sometimes it's translated conquer. But the point is. Get the victory over your weakness and what you lack. That if you repent, if you overcome this weakness that I have just rebuked you for, and you conquer that lovelessness that is in your heart, I will grant you, listen, to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, all of those are Old Testament symbols. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. And the point is, my friends, if you repent and recover your first love, he says, I'm going to restore you as a church to Adam's position and calling. You are going to multiply. You're going to subdue the earth. You're going to exercise godly dominion over it. I am going to make available to you the resources of creation and providence so that you can make a major impact upon your culture. If you repent of this lovelessness, I will supply you with all of the provisions and resources you need as a church to carry out the dominion mandate and to destroy evil in Ephesus. So the choice before us as a church is destruction or victory. Beloved, there is no middle ground. Disobedience and truth or in love leads to deconstruction. It is remembering and repenting and returning to our first love along with our zeal for theological and ethical purity that leads to victory. Ultimately, there will be no standoff between good and evil, between the church and the world. Good will overcome evil, and the church will conquer 
the world. Amen. If you would, please bow with me in prayer. Father God, we are so thankful for these letters to these seven churches. We, we thank you, Lord, that you're the one who leads them all. That you are the one, Lord, who will give victory to us as a church. That you will enable us to march forward as warriors for your cause. To bring dominion about on this earth. If we trust in you. If we repent of our sins. If we look to you for all things. If we remember, Lord, that it is your Holy Spirit that works in us and enables us to do those things that we need to do to be faithful in the little things every day. Oh, be with us. Guide us. Keep us in your word. Keep us in prayer. Keep us loving one another. And more than anything else, give us the desire to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and energy. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402. 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Amen.